willkommen in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Berlin. This is City Breaks Berlin, episode 14, Jewish Berlin, and I'm Marion Jones. City Breaks started life as a podcast, still is a podcast. It's slowly becoming a website too. And before I get going on this episode, can I just encourage you to have a look at said website, www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk. As of the beginning of the Berlin series, I've been doing a proper blog post every episode, a summary of all the information, the links, the reading ideas, etc., all in one place. And work is underway to add those for all the other series. Yes, it is quite a lot of work, but I hope it's going to be worth it. And I'd love it if people had a look and let me know what they think. Anyway, Jewish Berlin. You may be thinking that we covered that in the episode on the Holocaust and Remembrance which indeed is true, sort of. But when I was researching that, it struck me again and again how much more there is to the story of Jews in Berlin than that dreadful episode. And also how many places there are to visit in the city where you can find out more and go a little deeper into Berlin culture. So I decided it was all worth an episode in its own right. If you go round a Berlin cemetery, you'll be struck, I think, by the number of Jewish-sounding names that you see, Rosenberg, Rabinowitz, Blumenthal. You may already be able to name some famous Berlin Jews. Max Liebermann is perhaps one of the best-known, the German Impressionist painter. Then there's Albert Einstein. OK, so he was Swiss, really. But it was in Berlin where he became director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Physics, a post he took up in 1914, and he lived in Berlin right up until 1932, when he renounced German citizenship and went to the US. And perhaps you already know that there is an annual event held in Berlin called the Day of Jewish Culture, celebrating the diversity of modern Jewish life, music, literature, lectures, films, all sorts of events aimed at both Jewish and non-Jewish visitors. So, in this episode then, a little bit of history and half a dozen places in Berlin where you can go to find out more. So then, Lost Gates, let's go. A good place to start is 1671, when 50 Jewish families arrived in Berlin. They had been invited specially by Friedrich Wilhelm, Duke of Prussia, who knew that they had been forced to leave Vienna, and who thought that attracting immigrants to the city would help with the rebuilding that was needed after the Thirty Years' War. So that was the beginning of the first Jewish community in the city, and the very next year after they arrived, land was bought on their behalf to set up the first Jewish cemetery on Große Hamburger Straße, a place that we'll be coming back to later in the episode. Jews continued to arrive in Berlin, mainly from all over Eastern Europe. They settled in, they set up Jewish schools, but began to teach in the German language too. And by the 19th century, there was a large Jewish community in the city, clustered mainly around Orianenburgerstrasse, so that's north of Alexanderplatz. A very important year was 1866, when a building was put up known as the Neue Synagoge, so the new synagogue, in Orianenburgerstrasse. Still very much the Jewish area of the city, although from about 1900, those who had become wealthier began to move west, and settle around the Tiergarten, Charlottenburg and Wilmersdorf. In 1911, the World Zionist Organization headquarters was set up in Berlin, so indicating the importance of the connection between Berlin and its Jewish population. 
By the 1920s, there were about 170,000 Jewish citizens living and working in Berlin. 1933 was the year in which a Jewish museum was opened next door to the new synagogue. So, seemingly another sign of Jewish settlement in the city. The opening and dedication ceremony was held in January of that year, but, of course, it was also the year in which Hitler came to power and in which the boycott of Jewish businesses began. And so too did the fleeing of many Jews abroad. In 1938, the year of the pogrom, when so many synagogues and Jewish businesses were damaged or destroyed, the new synagogue itself was badly burnt, and the Jewish museum was forced to close. There followed the Shoah, the Holocaust, which took the lives of 55,000 Jewish Berliners a story I told in much more detail in episode 7. Thirteen years after the war, the Jewish community of East Berlin came together again to think what to do about their synagogue, and this was what they decided. The facade of this house of worship will be preserved for permanent remembrance and as a warning for all times. Thirty years later, in 1988, restoration began of the new synagogue, and it was reopened in 1995 so exactly 50 years after the liberation of Berlin from Nazi dictatorship. So, yes, a sign that the Jewish community in Berlin had not been completely extinguished, but it's certainly true to say that a way of life around Orianenburgerstrasse had completely disappeared. Just to wind back a minute, I found descriptions of this area in the early 20th century as having streets lined with Jewish prayer rooms and bookshops selling Yiddish books, and kosher food shops, a bustling, lively community described by lots of authors in literature. And I'm just going to use one book as an example, written by the Austrian Joseph Roth, Joseph Roth in English, because of course he ended up in America. And this particular book was called The Wandering Jews. He describes walking along one of the streets in the area, looking through a window and seeing a Jewish cabaret. A fat woman with bare and flabby forearms, as he described it, wielding a wooden spoon, a little troop of actors about to appear on a makeshift stage, and an audience, quote, sitting at small tables, eating bread and sausages and drinking beer. They went to the kitchen to fetch food and drink, enjoyed themselves, howled and laughed. And here's his description of the programme for the evening. Quote, First to appear was a small skinny fellow, he sang old songs and made fun of them by giving them unexpected and unsuitable twists. Then the two women sang an old song together. An actor told a funny story of Shalom Alechheim's, and at the end, Esarokin, the director, recited Hebrew and Yiddish poems by recent or contemporary Jewish poets. He would recite the Hebrew verses, followed by the Yiddish translation, and sometimes he would sing two or three stanzas as though he were alone in the room. So that then, the briefest of resumes of Jewish life in Berlin before the 1930s, let's move on to the places you can visit today to find out more. And I think one of the main ones is the new synagogue, the Neue Synagoge. Confusingly named, of course, because it is no longer new or indeed the newest of the synagogues in the city. Anyway, it's in Orianenburgerstrasse, so that's the nearest U-Bahn stop, Orianenburger Tor, and you may well see glimpses of it from all over the city, because it's that building with the beautiful golden dome. It is open to visitors. I'll put the link in the show notes. And it is no longer a working 
synagogue or only on very occasionally, it is more a museum, a cultural centre, a place to learn about Jewish history in Berlin. But a good place to start talking about it is to remember that when it opened in 1866, it was an ingenious design, a really sophisticated new structure with room for 3,000 worshippers. Its very lavish entrance facade, two towers topped with gilded domes, and absolutely the centre of the Jewish community in this area of the city. When it was restored after the war, in fact only the facade and the gilded dome were properly put back, there's enough left of the inside to make it easy to imagine what it must have been like, but really these days it's a cultural centre where you can learn all sorts of things. The story of the building itself is told, and just to pick out one or two details, there's a wood carving of the opening of the building in 1866, giving a sense of how many people attended. There are photos of the bomb damage from November 1943, and there is a heartening story of one aspect of the pogrom in 1938, which explains why the new synagogue wasn't completely destroyed that night. As the guidebook puts it, the interior hall was trashed, the ark broken open, the Torah scrolls desecrated, and the building set ablaze. At that moment, Wilhelm Kreutzfeldt, a courageous Berlin policeman, prevented the worst by notifying the fire department, which extinguished the fire inside the structure. There's so much horror to the story of the 1930s that just that little detail of one Berliner who thought, no, enough, and did something about it, is heartening. And you get the same mix of horror and a little chink of hope from this description, written by Rabbi Max Nussbaum, who was in the new synagogue the day after the pogrom, and described what he saw as follows. We found the pews scorched, the walls blackened by fire and soot, a dead sanctuary, or so we thought, until we walked further, lifted our eyes to the ark, above the ark, and perceived our own twentieth-century miracle. The eternal light was burning, had been burning throughout the 9th and 10th of November. As well as the events surrounding the building itself, there's a lot of material here to see on Jewish religion and worship. Here, for example, a description of the original building from the guidebook, describing, quote, the men's vestibule and prayer room, the immense space of the sanctuary, the several flights of stairs to be climbed to reach the women's gallery, colourful stained-glass windows infusing the interiors with muted light. There are descriptions of the services themselves, which were based on what were called the new rites, meaning that there were Hebrew portions of the service, shortened, and also passages in German. The Torah desk and lectern are there, They've been partially reconstructed from fragments. There are the four candelabras which surrounded it and the eternal lamp. There are pictures by Jewish artists, for example, The Prophet, Der Prophet by Jakob Steinhardt and a self-portrait by Max Liebermann. There are lots of stories of the community who worshipped here. This one, for example, on the eternal light, which was originally suspended in front of the Torah Ark. Here's a quote from the guidebook. Donated in 1866 on the occasion of the new synagogue's dedication, it is inscribed Julius und Lydia Jacobi, 1866, Adolf und Cecilia Jacobi, 5662. That's the date in the Jewish calendar, of course. It goes on to explain who they were. The Jacobi brothers ran a cotton business located at Spandauer Straße No. 7. Their wives were sisters from the Schoenbank family of Berlin. 
Julius Jacobi was elected to the executive board of the Jewish community in 1878 and became community chairman in 1901. Both couples are buried in the Jewish cemetery on Schönhauser Allee in the Prenzlauerberg district. And listen to this description of a photograph which shows one of the last couples to be married under the wedding canopy. They were a rabbi, Heinz Meyer, and Ingeborg Silberstetter. They were married here on the 17th of December, 1939, and this is what the guidebook tells us about them. Quote, Rabbi Meyer was forced to work as an ordner, or marshal, during the deportations. The Meyers were deported from Berlin to Theresienstadt on the 17th of May, 1943. On the 1st of October, 1944, Ingeborg Meyer was transferred to Auschwitz, where she was murdered. Rabbi Heinz Meyer died on the 17th of January, 1945, in the concentration camp of Dachau. There is a memorial wall here, which gives the numbers in the starkest terms. In 1933, there were 160,000 Jewish Berliners, of whom about 90,000 escaped Germany. About the 50,576 Jews abducted from Berlin and known to have been sent to extermination camps, where they were murdered, the guidebook has the following to say, quote, All of their names are present on this memorial wall, and inscribed onto the memorial wall also the wording, Every person has a name, the Jewish victims of National Socialism in Berlin. This synagogue then, no longer a synagogue, is open to the public, but let's not forget that there are about ten other synagogues in the city of Berlin, the biggest one being the Synagoge Reichstrasse in the Prenzlauer Berg, but they, of course, are working synagogues, not usually open to visitors, although this one is one of the places where the annual Day of Jewish Culture events are held. Another place you can visit is a little area called Hakisha Hofer, just north of the Alexanderplatz, so in the old Jewish area of the city. A Hof means a yard or a courtyard, and there are eight of them clustered together, which were originally home to many of the Jewish community in the area, but which have been renovated, redeveloped really, in the 1990s and are now filled with a mix of shops and art galleries and restaurants. I think there's a cinema and theatre there too. Quite a touristy area, if you will, but somewhere where you can get a glimpse of the shape of an area where so many newly arrived Jews first came when they got to Berlin. Little courtyards, lots of people living in crowded surroundings and just up the road from the new synagogue. Just nearby are two places which are set up to tell you more about the Jewish history in the city, one being the Otto Wright Museum. Again, I told his story in episode 7. That was the businessman who ran a workshop for the blind, where a lot of the Jews worked, and who took it upon himself to try and save some of his employees from the Nazis, so hiding them away in the corners of his workshop, a great risk to himself, of course. So there's his museum you can visit, and there's also an exhibition called All About Anne, the story of Anne Frank. Then there are the city's Jewish cemeteries, one in Hamburgstrasse, that was the original one built on land granted to the Jews when they arrived in the 17th century, a site with a number of stories to tell. There are some well-known German Jews buried here, for example, Moses Mendelssohn being the best known, a well-known Enlightenment figure, a philosopher, whose followers called him the German Socrates. Then there's the story of how, in 1794, the cemetery was closed 
the Prussian hygiene ordinance decided that there would be no more burials within the city walls, and so a new Jewish cemetery was opened up in the Schönhauser Allee. Half a century later, in 1844, a Jewish old people's home was built on the site. That is to say, it was built on the edge of the site because Jewish law forbids the disturbance of the dead, so the cemetery was left alone, became a park for the residents to use. Until during World War II, the Gestapo took it over and used it as a holding camp for the Jewish inhabitants of Berlin that they'd rounded up before they were sent to the concentration camps. Eventually the home was destroyed, the graveyard was desecrated, gravestones smashed, the dead pulled out of the ground, new bodies from street fighting in the area, buried in mass graves. And today, if you go to visit, you will see a memorial plaque remembering all of this, next to a sculpture by Willy Lammert entitled Jewish Victims of Fascism. Then the other main Jewish cemetery is the one at Schönhauser Allee, number 22 in fact, which was built in 1827, so once it had been decided to close the original one. More than 22,000 graves there, 750 family tombs, and some memorials. For example, one dedicated to 35 young Jewish men who'd been killed fighting for Germany during the First World War, and one dating from the Second World War, dedicated to a group of Wehrmacht soldiers who tried to desert and were caught hiding in the cemetery by SS officers who hanged them from the trees in the cemetery. So both those memorials with something to say about the role of Jewish soldiers in the 20th century. Some killed fighting for Germany, others killed for trying to stand up to Hitler and his regime. On one level, it's a cemetery like any other, but when the writer Peter Schneider went to visit, he found there was an extra layer to this particular cemetery. Here's what he wrote about it. I found myself alone in this vast field of graves under the rain, the chorus of all these voices, fallen silent so long ago, swirling around me like powerful music. All of them, everyone who was buried here, had once belonged to this city, had wanted to belong to it, had shaped, influenced and improved it through their work as doctors, publishers, lawyers, civil servants, workers, artists, scientists, bankers and entrepreneurs. He goes on to say that the cemetery struck him as a wonderful memorial site which inspires awe and gratitude above all for these Jews, for what they left behind in their lives and in the life of the city. There are, of course, many, many people buried there who died during World War II, and the starkest details on the gravestone leave you wondering about the stories that lie behind them. One that struck me particularly was a trio of plaques on a wall at the far side away from the entrance, which were labelled in German Zum Gedächtnis an unsere Kinder, in memory of our children. The parents are not named, did that mean they survived? But the names of the three people buried there read Ruth Veit Simon, born on the 3rd of January 1914 in Berlin, died at Theresienstadt on the 26th of July 1943. And then, I'm guessing her younger brother, Rolf Veit Simon, born in Berlin in 1916, who died in November 1943 at Mauthausen. So they died a few months apart in two different Nazi concentration camps. And then the third name, I'm guessing perhaps the couple's daughter-in-law, Sabina Veit Simon, born with a different surname in 1916 in Graz, who also died in November 1943 at Mauthausen. 
The two of them, the married couple, were aged 27, their older sister, 29. And lastly then, as places to visit, I must mention the Jewish Museum, which tells the history of Jews in Germany, aims to teach all about Jewish culture. It is, I think, one of the most visited museums in Berlin, and it is quite a place, starting, in fact, with the building itself. Here's how it's described on the Visit Berlin website. The building is an artwork. The whole edifice, inside and out, reflects the museum's subject matter. Architect Daniel Liebeskind's building unfurls in zigzagging corridors like a lightning flash, or, for some, a broken star of David. Empty spaces, known as voids, appear throughout the building. These voids are not accessible until you reach the memory void. They remind visitors of the voids that the Holocaust has left behind. And here is a description from the museum's own guidebook about the inside. The slate stairway leading to the lower level opens into a system of three intersecting axes. The axis of exile, the axis of the Holocaust and the axis of continuity. For Liebeskind, these axes embody the different paths Jews were forced to take because of Nazi persecution. Quite deliberately, the only way into the museum is through this series of underground passageways where the story of the Jews and the Holocaust is told. On the upper floor, then, is a museum about all sorts of other aspects of Jewish culture. Perhaps giving a list of some of the sections up there will give you an idea. There's one on the Torah, prayer and practice, music, one entitled When Jews Became Germans, Family Album, Hall of Fame, Art and Artists, Catastrophe, After 1945, and one at the end labelled What is Antisemitism? It's not by chance, then, that in the very first exhibition room, the central exhibit is all about the Torah, the most important scripture of the Jewish faith, consisting of the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and other writings from the prophets, for example, which together make up the Torah, a word which means instruction or law in Hebrew. You can learn about its contents, you can see some Torah, you can get information about them, for example, quote from the guidebook, every Torah scroll is prepared by a specially trained scribe who copies the Hebrew text onto a parchment scroll by hand with a quill pen. You can learn how it's divided into weekly portions which form the major part of the service, so that during the course of a year the whole text will have been read. There are sections alongside that on the Jewish law and a bit entitled Observing the Law in Modern Times. Then there are all sorts of objects to look at, just to pick a few examples. A needlework sampler from about 1810, which shows both Roman and Hebrew letters. So the children, girls I imagine, in the school embroidering them, were learning both alphabets. There's a heart-rending photograph from 1936, showing the bar mitzvah and feminine equivalent bat mitzvah of about 30 young Berlin Jews all wearing smart suits and white dresses. And you look at that and think, whatever became of each of them? There's a large section of family collections and requests, which the guidebook refers to as the heart of the collection. So things sent by emigrants, by Holocaust survivors, by their descendants, which, quote, bear witness to Jewish life and to life in society as a whole, as well as to exclusion, persecution, exile and new beginnings. 
and in that collection all kinds of different things family photographs for example there's a hebrew lotto game there's a sketch called two women in the ghetto by gertrud zulzer who survived the theresienstadt concentration camp and said afterwards that while she'd been in the ghetto she traded some of her drawings for bread to keep herself alive there are letters written to family members from prisoners in the camps and also a whole collection of what look like everyday objects but which have special significance explained in the guidebook as follows imagine a grater an unprepossessing metal implement used in the kitchen for grating carrots or cheese nothing spectacular a little worse for wear it belongs to a friend of yours and he tells you that it is one of the few things that he took from his mother's house when she died she used it to grate potatoes and onions for the fried pancakes latkes that she always made on the jewish holiday of hanukkah his mother followed the recipe that she had learned from her own mother that grater is one of your friend's most prized possessions and he uses it only once a year to make latkes for hanukkah and i must mention too the special children's section of the museum called anoa which yes does have noah in it it's for ages three to ten or thereabouts and it's a huge circular wooden ark which tells the flood story which of course is told in the torah and there are a hundred and fifty wooden animals children are encouraged to crawl all over the ark to explore it to meet the animals and to touch whatever they like and just to finish this section on the museum I'd like to mention that they do guided tours, I think usually on Saturday at 3 o'clock and Sunday at 11, details on the website. I'll put the link in the show notes. When I went, I just looked round by myself, but I think the idea of a guided tour with somebody to explain lots of things to you does sound an interesting one. And finally, to round off the episode, two more ideas for getting somebody who perhaps knows much more about this than you do to explain things to you. There are two different walking tours of Jewish Berlin which I came across. One is run by the Anne Frank Centre, aimed, it says, for age 14 plus, and they will take you round the whole area, which of course is the Scheunenviertel, the area that was the old Jewish quarter, to lots of places such as the Hamburger Strasse Cemetery, the Ottoweit Workshop, telling you the history, pointing out memorials on the way, and Stolpersteiner those stumbling stones set in the ground telling you where Jewish victims of the Holocaust lived or went to school. I talked about those in more detail in episode 7 too and generally giving you the history of the area and the people who did live there and do live there. And secondly, there's another tour with history guides Yoav and Natalie Sapir. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Who say of the walk that they lead, quote, our main focus lies on Berlin's Jewish history. Perhaps we should say Berlin's Jewish histories, in the plural, as there were many of them. We would be honoured to take you on a meaningful journey, unfolding these stories with you. Our history tours are not just about seeing the sights, but also about understanding them. So I hope then I have given you an understanding of this very important aspect of Berlin culture and an idea of where in the city you can go to find out more about it. The Holocaust Memorial near the German Parliament is one of the city's most visited sites, and rightly so, but there are so many other places to find, other stories to hear, that perhaps are a little less easy to track down. Okay then, so, so much for today's episode. 
Next time we're off somewhere completely different to Charlottenburg, the posh end of town, and specifically to the palace of Charlottenburg to hear a little history, to find out what there is to see there, and perhaps most specifically to learn the stories of some of the very famous characters most connected with it. I hope you'll be able to join me for that. Meanwhile, for today, can I just give one last reminder about the website? Do go and have a look and tell me what you think and leave you then, as usual, with a little bit of German to thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören and to say goodbye until next time. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Auf Wiederhören.